Welcome to the CKNW Weekend Morning Show Podcast. I'm your Saturday host, Sterling Fox, and today, wealthy people who shelter income in offshore tax havens should be punished, according to accounting professor Dr. Tisha King. The Globe and Mail's business reporter Jeff Jones returns. He'll talk about what Canada is now committed to after the COP26 climate conference. And Canada's food professor, Dr. Sylvain Charlebois at Dalhousie University in Halifax is not pleased with dairy and milk price increases or the lack of explanation from the Canadian Dairy Council. So, let's get started. Ah, yes, money. That's what this conversation is going to be all about. A pleasure to welcome our first guest of the program to our airwaves here in Vancouver. Joining us from Dalhousie University in Halifax is Dr. Tisha King, assistant professor in the Faculty of Accounting and the author of this piece at theconversation.com, The Pandora Papers, How Punishing Tax Cheats Can Serve as a Deterrent. Professor King, Tisha, good morning and welcome. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's great to have you with us. First, we had the, uh, the let me see now, there was the Panama Papers, the Paradise mm-hmm. Papers, the Luxembourg mm-hmm. leaks, and most recently, mm-hmm. the Pandora Papers, which I'm told contained millions, namely 12 millions uh, of uh, files of offshore records of wealthy people all over the planet who spend a great deal of time and money hiding their money from their respective governments. Does that sort of boil it down in a nutshell? Oh, yes, definitely. It sure does. And in those instances, we would be sure to find cases of aggressive tax avoidance, which happens to be legal. But there are also some other aspects of it, which would include tax evasion, which happens to then be illegal. Okay, so can we make can we take a second here, Tisha, and talk about this is confusing for a lot of people because it's mm-hmm. angering when you see all of this money that should be flowing to the government to help pay for their fair share, as the NDP liked to say in the last campaign. But yep. st- when they when they deliberately take the, those those revenues and take them offshore, what part of that is legal, and where does the line get crossed into illegal behavior? Well, if the tax laws allow you to take some of your um, your wealth offshore, as long as you um, report it, then that's the legal aspect. Okay. Because, sure, there's nothing wrong with having assets offshore, depending on where you finally reside. We had some people that turned up there that were now residents of different countries. So in that instance, you can see a lot of um, allowed behavior. You kind of twist the tax code. But then when you start to um, funnel these money through different trusts and trusts where it's kind of not even clear who even owns the trust, uh-huh. people start to do research and these funds are not reported to the tax authority, then we may be crossing over that very uh, blurred line of moving from something that's actually legal and potentially allowed to something that is totally illegal hasn't been uh, revealed to the tax authority. And if it were revealed, you would have to pay taxes uh-huh. on that money. And this yeah. is the part that people get really ticked off about, don't they, yep. Tisha? Because they see they <laughs> see all of these very wealthy people simply skating away from... Mm-hmm. And this is, this is the point of having you on this morning. I really enjoyed your piece. How punishing tax cheats can serve as a deterrent. It implies, or at least I inferred, Tisha, that 
uh, we don't punish tax cheats very much in Canada, and you're looking to see the hammer come down a whole lot heavier. Is that also kind of in a nutshell what it's about? Well, you know, um, we we tend to report the punishment of tax cheats. Uh, what we find, however, based on the reports that the CRA would usually publish on these cheats, Sometimes, in some instances, it is the wealthy that managed to escape by the wealthy who managed to, uh, some for some reason, not be pursued um, in the same way. I find that people feel like they're not pursued in the same way that a, a typical person would be pursued. Mm-hmm. So, we're just saying, you know, as you mentioned, these things anger people, these things anger taxpayers who are being honest, who are observing what's happening. And if even if these wealthy people are punished, let's make it just as publicized, let's make it just as transparent as when these Panama Papers, Pandora Papers, when these come to the surface. Indeed, because we know that the Canada Revenue Agency, if you're a few hundred dollars uh, off in your declaration, they'll chase you down and squeeze that money out of you like you're a really first-class bad guy criminal. But, you know, you, you, you stash a few million here and a few hundred million there offshore, and hey, you know, you're just a lucky person with a lot of dough. Uh, and so this yeah. is this, it's this double standard, Tisha, that yeah, drives yeah. taxpayers nuts. Yeah, yeah. I think that's from 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 my research and just hearing people respond. It's the double standard or the appearance of a double standard. Who knows? For what little we know, maybe a double standard doesn't exist. But if it doesn't, the authorities need to make it very clear that this double standard does not exist, and they pursue everyone equally. And there's fairness in the system because if we can't perceive the fairness. And if we still perceive the double standard, that's where people get angry. That's where people just start to think, well, this whole system isn't fair and it's not working. Indeed. So do do we have, uh, since these Panama Papers revelations, and we heard about athletes and car racers and others with a lot of dough who are uh, participating in some of this offshore stuff, since the revelation of the Panama Papers, only the most recent batch of, uh, of files, has Canada Revenue responded in any way, Dr. King, that would suggest they're on this now, and by gosh, this is the end of that. Well, despite the many articles I've read about the wealthy and how they've managed to get through this loophole again, I've only come across one article that does mention that the tax authority, they are starting to delve into the instances or the cases of the Pandora Papers. And some other academics have mentioned that, you know, they have heard rumblings um, along that same story. But I would, again, encourage the authority to be very open and transparent with the public at this time. There's so much technology, so much um, information going around on the Internet. If they can keep us up to date and, and, and give some updates to the people who are observing these things, um, maybe they can also see that this is transparent process and they're doing what they're supposed to. Uh, just the perception of them pursuing justice for all, I think, would help to reduce the anger and also deter others from um, cheating on tax. Yeah, good point, Dr. King. A, a final question to you, ma'am, and this is, this is I think this is where it sort of boils down to in terms of accountability. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and, and because if you confront 
one of these people who is clearly, uh, there's a paper trail a mile wide. Yes, you know, there are enormous assets being stashed mm-hmm. offshore. The person's mm-hmm. going to go, well, I don't live in Canada. I live in Hawaii. And so I, mm-hmm. my, my accounting firm in Montreal is responsible for all of this. So don't look at me with that tone of voice. Mm-hmm. You go after my money people and you, you hassle them. I am guilt free. Mm-hmm. Now, that's, that's yeah. a pretty standard dodge, isn't it? It is. <laughs> uh, it's funny because that's why I typically find like trying to cast the blame on someone else. Right. And, you know, perhaps they were clueless. Let's say for whatever reason you had millions and you had no idea what someone did with it. Fine. But, you know, if if that's going to be the argument each time, then maybe we need to close those loopholes as well for the people who are managing the money on their behalf. Uh-huh. And I suppose, though, it's, 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 it's a, a little disturbing that uh, the prime minister is an extremely wealthy individual and many of his friends may be involved in this. And you get the feeling there's not a great deal of willpower coming from the top down to start chasing the bad guys. What's your sentiment on that? Yeah, based on my research, I've had um, participants make those comments as well. And it's not only for Canada. It's all around the world right. where you're asking the wealthy to make laws for themselves <laughs> you're making laws for the other wealthy people as well so it seems like it can be a conflict of interest but i still believe that there is some hope and if they can improve the transparency inform the public at least increase that perception of justice for all i think there can still be some hope and we can um we can see we can see improvements and we can see um, benefits in the future. Well, we're certainly looking for some refreshing on that uh, uh, file mm-hmm. altogether. Dr. Tisha King, thanks very much for joining us this morning. A pleasure to have you on us uh, with us today. And I'm going to commend your article at theconversation.com to our listeners. It's called The Pandora Papers, How Punishing Tax Cheats Can Serve as a Deterrent. It's a good read. Tisha King, thanks so much. We'll talk again, I hope. Thank you so much for having me. Mighty nice to have you with us on this Saturday morning. I have an email here from Rory in Kelowna. Morning, Sterling. I think you made a time boo-boo at 6.44 just before the break. You said, at this time tomorrow, we'll have lost an hour. In fact... We'll have gained an hour. We lose the hour when changing to daylight saving time. So, Rory, a whole lot more awake than I am (laughs) this morning, catches us up on the fact that uh, the warning, however, remains the same. Whether we lose or gain an hour, we're going to have to adjust our clocks by an hour tonight before we go to bed as standard time returns at 2 a.m. Sunday morning. Uh, Should never do math on the radio. Just leave that to the pros. And speaking of which, it's a pleasure to welcome back a pro. Jeffrey Jones joins us again from the business desk at the Globe and Mail. Jeff is uh, but, but kind enough to return to the program today after being with us last weekend so we get to book end COP26 with a pro. Jeff Jones, good morning and welcome back. Great to be with you, Sterling. Good to have you, Jeff. Uh, talk to us, first of all, about your your first overall impressions. Now that the dust has settled, all of those uh, 400 private jets have left to points beyond Glasgow. What's the upshot of it all from your perspective? Well, if you look at it from the perspective of the leaders and business leaders, they all talked about an incredibly productive week of agreements and deals and announcements. And if you talk to Greta Thunberg, you'll hear about a massive failure. Uh, so uh, it really depends on on your perspective. From my from mine and those of my colleagues who are actually on the ground in Glasgow, 
it's been a frantic week for sure. Mm-hmm. Well, you uh, now, Adam Radwanski, one of your colleagues, has been in Glasgow, and you and Adam collaborated a couple of days ago, Jeff, on a Globe column entitled "Mark Carney's Climate Alliance Adds 450 Companies, but No Plan to Divest from Fossil Fuels." So, is this the window dressing the the flurry of activity resulting in a deal, but no? Uh, no uh, diving deep into the the mission of the of the conference in the first place. Well, a lot of this is an announcement of of ambition, and and it's and it's it, no, there's no doubt about it. Uh, the um, uh, the accomplishment here by led by Mark Carney, our former Bank of Canada governor, mm-hmm. was to bring together financial firms that are responsible, that own $130 trillion worth of assets. And that alone is quite a headline number. Now, the, the, the key to this will be getting all of those assets aligned with the net zero uh, stipulations in the Paris Agreement, because just as it stands right now, a very, very tiny fraction of them are. So this is where, where uh, the work actually begins, not where it ends. So this Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, or GFANS, for for those of us who like those sorts of acronyms, it's just been formed. This is the 450 companies that Mark Carney's put together. But at at the bottom of all of this, or at least as I understand the mission statement of these companies, Jeff, is to create a fund of of $100 billion to redistribute to other parts of the planet. Is that on the agenda? Do you understand the same thing as I do? Well, this is $100 trillion, Sterling. Uh, so we're, we're talking about some more zeros here. And all right. The idea, the idea is, okay, first of all, they're going to take the assets that they own. This is the plan. Take the assets that they own and, and uh, transition them so that they're all uh, net zero um, uh, certified. Uh, the companies themselves want to also make $100 trillion available to do things like invest in uh, energy transition, so renewables, uh, wind, solar, and also make that money available to those types of projects in developing and emerging nations. Right, and so one of the one of the criticisms, if you will, of this whole uh, movement has been that bottom line, Jeff. It really uh, represents an enormous redistribution of wealth. Well, it, it, the, the thing, though, is, though, you've you got to remember that it is still private money. And, and um, so it's not where the governments are taking money from uh, private industry and, you know, distributing it to the populace or anything like that. I mm-hmm. mean, this is, where, this is where the actual banks, insurers and asset managers are saying, look, we have a responsibility here. Um, and uh, the responsibility is to get the world to net zero by 2050. So how do we do that? Because it really will require private money to do this. Governments can't do this on their own. Uh, There's just too much uh, capital that's required to to, um, uh, change the world's energy systems. Well, and, and you know, the, it's uh, there's a story in the National Post this morning, not to plug the competition or anything, but they're talking about companies like Rio Tinto, Suncor, General Motors, RBC, and others who are already basically there 
uh, they're already uh, doing uh, what the what Carney and his other group are talking about. Some Canadian companies are already out there enacting policies and making specific moves, Jeff, that are, are very much on side with what Glasgow was about. You know, it's interesting. One of the things that happened at the very beginning of the week was that Justin Trudeau uh, announced uh, that he would formalize uh, hard caps on emissions from the oil patch here in Canada. Right. And, um, you know, Jason Kenney treated that like uh, like uh, another incursion of uh, central Canadian power into Alberta. But it's interesting that you mentioned Suncor because Suncor and the other oil sands producers, the major ones, the ones that are responsible for something like 90 or 95 percent of oil sands production, mm-hmm. have formed their own net zero group, right? So they are already uh, on the path to working towards that. So uh, the industry may be ahead of the politicians in, in this regard. Now, that is if they are successful in uh, what's an amazingly difficult task in in reducing emissions, which account for something like 25% of Canada's total. Yeah, Jeff, I need to take a break. But just before we do, because you're in Calgary uh, and you've watched all of this from Calgary and you've watched the reaction from Edmonton vis-a-vis certain Canadian government uh, proposals and pitches at this conference, uh, you're talking about uh, Jason Kenney basically reacting as being highly beset upon. So in addition to the theatrical Edmonton response, what do you see? across the province of Alberta by way of of a a more general response, given that the government of Canada seems very determined to kill the Canadian oil industry? Well, (laughs) the... um uh, you know that that is certainly uh, the response from Edmonton that that uh, the feds are on uh, on the path to killing the Canadian oil industry. But look, you know we do have a, a resource heavy exporting economy, mm-hmm. and uh, it's it's uh, it's really interesting that uh, we talked earlier about G fans. We've got the Canadian banks that are part of that. And um, if you take a look uh, at how they got involved, they weren't uh, involved in the original launch of that. That's there was right. A big soul searching that went on to uh, to figure out what the ramifications are, because I mean they're the ones who are funding, lending, raising capital for the oil industry still. That's right. So um, this is this is where where we're going to see some friction and some compromise where they say, look, you know, we're not defunding this industry where our job is to, is to use our expertise and our money to help it decarbonize. So that's uh, uh, I think an interesting uh, contrast between what's happening on the political stage and what is happening on the ground with regard to the industries themselves. And, And those Canadian banks are quite late to the party. They only signed on a few weeks ago, didn't they? That's correct. Yeah. Tim French is driving. Jonathan Chung is our producer. Jeff Jones is our guest. Mr. Jones, a business columnist with the Globe and Mail, reporting from Calgary. We're talking about COP26. And we did open our phone lines, Jeff, uh, to uh, talk to some consumers and voters back home in Canada to get some local impressions. And we'll take some calls as we go forward and start with Hardy uh, in Abbotsford, B.C. Hardy, good morning. Morning, Sterling, and to your guest, Jeff, as well. As I told uh, the producer who took my call, I think the biggest problem is, is this file has been ongoing for 30-plus years. You know, I'm a mid-50-year-old male. I recognize this problem in the early, early 80s. And the thing is, we have done so little. 
I'll use myself as an analogy. I'm a middle-aged male, and you know, I want I, I want to I want to lose weight. You know, like most middle-aged males, I, I I weigh too much, but I really don't want. I really just say that, but I don't want to do anything about you it. I want to do the work, whatever I want. <laughs> right, right. And that's the way we've treated this file, and unfortunately, the the longer we wait to treat this file more seriously, the more drastic the action's going to be. And unfortunately, the more drastic the reaction is going to be, especially from young people who can see how our generation has totally screwed this up. And I, seeing how we handled the pandemic, I, I, I try to be optimistic. But when I listen to the Dan McTagues of the world on the radio yesterday and, and all these middle-aged men that are and older men that are at this conference, they just don't get it. I understand the political problems, but we're looking at it so short term. This is like we, we can mobilize things. We do it in wars. But for some reason, the inaction here is it's just catastrophic. History is going to go back and look at us and go, Man, what were these people faking? They were just complete idiots. All right, Hardy, great, great points, especially, Jeff, when you compare the reaction the world has had in, in terms of COVID-19 in the last year and a half relative to what we've done on climate in the last 30 or 40 years, as Hardy points out. Well, you know, and I'm also part of Team Middle-Aged Man, so looking at it, <laughs> <laughs> looking at it from that perspective, I'd say a, a, a few things. Um, if you... If you if you listen to what uh, what Greta Thunberg has been saying throughout this, and yesterday where she led an army of, of young people through the streets of Glasgow, is that, uh, you know, there has been so much talk, right? So, 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 so many agreements made and so little success at actually meeting the commitments that have been made. So that's what she's talking about. And right. I think she makes a great conscience for the rest of us to say, look, you know, well, 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 the world's leaders and business leaders are talking about what all the hurdles are. She's saying, get on with it. So, I mean, so that, that is, that is something to be somewhat optimistic about. And uh, here's another thing that I think about with regard to the pandemic itself. There had been a, uh, a lot of renewed interest in dealing with climate change that came through the pandemic where we saw what the world's, um, it kind of put a spotlight on what the world's vulnerabilities are. Mm hmm. Uh, so, I mean, look at look at some of the things that we have done, including instituting a price on carbon, which uh, which is uh, an important economic signal. And and the, and the closer the world gets to instituting those types of things, I think it puts it on at least a, a path where there is something being done as opposed to nothing. If that money is being used to uh, reposition our energy systems uh, to be um, uh, carbon neutral. So that, that's a good thing. But your caller is absolutely right. I mean, the more, uh, the longer we wait, uh, the, the, the smaller what they call the carbon budget gets, uh, the more difficult the task is to uh, keep the world's temperatures below uh, that, um, that ambition of, of a gain of 1.5 Celsius. No question about it. Let me quote from an article that you wrote the other day. Quote, the International Energy Agency and Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change released reports last summer that spelled out the need to sharply curtail the use of fossil fuels to prevent the worst effects of global warming, such as more severe storms, floods, droughts, and wildfires. There's no word not 
a single word about fossil fuels in the press release, says, uh, says a person from uh, Reclaim Finance, which is a, a French uh, ecological organization. She says it's 1,322 words, and they don't even mention the main driver of climate change. So you can see they're in complete denial of what climate science is telling us and is needed. And this after the gathering of uh, people supposedly zooming in spe- on the specifics, Jeff. Well, that's right. And, and you can see uh, where the problem lies with uh, a resource-heavy economy like Canada, because we've got uh, such a large percentage of our population um, employed in businesses that rely on the fossil fuel industry. So when they talk about energy transition, this is what they mean. It's so difficult so difficult to just flip a switch and say, okay, well, now all of our energy systems are renewable. Um, uh, you know, when you get, when most people are, are, uh, are heading home at the end of the day, they're getting in cars or they're, you know, they're traveling on, on, on planes or on trains that run on fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, th- this is why so much money is needed to, uh, to make these changes that are so necessary. Hardy, our caller, expressed a certain degree of pessimism about us actually ever being able to grapple with this. Now that the conference is over, you and I have talked at both ends of it, Mr. Jones. Are you any more or less optimistic or pessimistic than you were last Saturday? Well, officially, there's a there's another week of uh, proceedings. Uh, there's a few things to be decided yet, having to do with things like, such as transportation and uh, uh, the uh, setting rules for carbon markets, all of those types of things. Um, I think we talked last week about about uh, all of the private planes uh, descending on yeah. Scotland, right? And, right, and and all of the carbon that will be emitted as a result of this, and that's absolutely true. Uh, but I will say that, um, that there is benefit of putting this story uh, front and center in the public consciousness uh, and will help provide, um, you know, some pressure on leaders to, to uh, actually take the actions that are needed. Indeed. Jeff Jones, thanks very much for this. We do appreciate your taking the second time out with us uh, to join us and talk about this terribly important topic, especially as it affects so many Canadians. Much appreciated, sir. My pleasure. Good morning to you on a soggy Saturday. I'm Sterling Fox. Tim French is driving. Jonathan Chung is our producer. And our next guest joins us from the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. Always a pleasure to say good morning and welcome back to Sylvain Charlebois, Canada's food professor. Sylvain, good morning. Good morning. It's good to have you with us. My goodness, I read your article with great interest in the Globe and Mail the other day about the the dairy rate. Let me just quote uh, to set up our conversation. The uh, Canadian Dairy Commission announced last week that dairy farmers will get an unprecedented 8.4% more for their milk and more than 12% more for butter starting in February. It's the highest increase since the commission was created in 1960. And typically, with the Canadian Dairy Commission, Sylvain, absolutely nothing beyond the announcement of the price increase. No justification, no accountability, lots of secrecy. Tell us more. Yeah, I would encourage your listeners to actually go on the CDC's website, uh, the Canadian Dairy Commission's website, which is a crown corporation owned by all Canadians. And uh, the mandate of the 
CDC is to serve the cane public, not dairy farmers, the cane public. So its job is to set a fair price for our farmers so we can maintain some milk production in Canada. That's basically what the mandate is, and the CDC's role is very much part of our supply management regime uh, with the quota system and tariffs on imports. So right. It plays a really, really important role, and every year they have until November 1st to publish um, uh, an increase. How much more should dairy farmers make uh, the following year? And so typically we expect an increase of 1%, 2%, maybe 3%. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was announced uh, a little over a week ago uh, is almost double the previous record. So it's a huge jump, 8.4%. And for butter, it's 12 Right. So it's really going to impact a lot of different prices at the grocery store. Yeah, Professor Charlebois, I think one thing you've said already is a bit of a, a bit of an eye opener. You said the Canadian Dairy Commission is a federal agency that works for all Canadians. Why is it then, Sylvain, that most Canadians think the Canadian Dairy Commission is a little cartel designed to protect the small, very elite group of dairy producers in this country against foreign competition. Well, yeah, that's that's the question, Mark. Uh, that's the question I'm, I've been asking myself for a very long time. The first time I actually reviewed the CDC was about 20 years ago, mm-hmm. and uh, nothing really much has changed. The one concern that I had at the time was so you have the dairy farmers of Canada that's likely the most powerful lobby group in the country mm-hmm. they spend they spend about 150 million dollars in advertising to tell Canadians to drink more milk and eat more you know dairy products that's their job they promote dairy they promote the industry as much as possible and they will lobby the government to death to maintain uh, the supply management regime on the other hand the CDC is there to work for the public, but over time, what I've noticed personally is that the CDC and the Dairy Farmers of Canada, the lobby group, are really one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when, you, when you look at how they operate, who's in charge, the governance of it, which is led by three people with close links to the dairy sector, the lack of transparency and everything else is very much consistent with how a lobby group would work. In fact, this week I was appalled to see the Canadian Dairy Commission itself liking and retweeting um, messages uh, that were sent by dairy farmers and the lobby group itself. They, I, I actually think that the CDC completely forgot why they exist in the first place. Mm. So it's not, uh, um, in terms of the millions of Canadians, with this impression that the Canadian Dairy Commission, CDC, uh, is in fact a lobby group representing farmers, despite the fact that it was originally organized to protect Canadians. Exactly. Now, I want to make something very clear, and I've I, I, I seen that on, on, on social media all week long. I. The 8.4% is one thing. I don't think that's really the issue, even though it can be shocking for a lot of people. And, of course, 
mill prices and dairy product prices will increase in the new year as a result of the recommendation right. given by the CDC. I, I get that. I understand. But dairy farmers in Canada do deserve to make a good living. Mm-hmm. That's, that's great. That's not the point. The point is where is the waypoint 4% coming from? How was it calculated? Who was interviewed? Uh, the CDC claims that the data and reports were verified by accountants. Uh, I've asked the CDC several times, can we get the names of accountants? Because typically accountants would actually give their name and put their names on reports. There's, if you read the reports, there's no name mentioned, mm-hmm. zero. There's no raw data as well. So we don't know where these numbers are coming from, and because it's a crown corporation, I think Canadians deserve more transparency. So, uh, but uh, we don't have any recourse as consumers, do we? It's not as though, well, we used to be able to. I, I used to live in White Rock on the Canadian border here with Washington State in B.C., Sylvain, and it, back in the day before 9-11, uh, we'd pop across to, uh, to Blaine to get our milk and cheese and butter and stuff at American prices and bring it home, no big deal, but we can't do that anymore. So what recourse do Canadian consumers have beyond suck it up and pay the extra dough. That's right. And and some of your listeners may wonder, well, what's different? What's the difference between dairy and other products that we're seeing skyrocketing right now? Well, milk is a public good in Canada, really, when you think about it, because uh, we have a quota system. Only the privileged few can are allowed to produce milk in Canada. You and I can't start a dairy farm unless you own quotas, and these quotas are worth millions mm-hmm. and millions of dollars. Each dairy farm, if you go and visit a dairy farm, on average, they'll own anywhere between 2.5 to $3 million worth of quota alone. Uh, so that's why often people think, well, farmers are very poor people. Well, they may be cash poor, but they're certainly asset rich right. for sure. And that's really... So it's it, you. We shouldn't be deceived by that. But what's really the challenge with dairy is that it's a closed market. It's a very protected market. Right. So if if prices go up in dairy, well, we don't have much of a choice but to buy what's being offered. Right. And this, of course, is all because of the marketing system that we have. We have this supply management system that seems to continue to be supported by both uh, the major parties. The conservatives did not abandon uh, supply management under Harper, though they threatened to a couple of times. And of course, it's the creation of the Liberal Party, so they're going to go with it forever. Uh, So uh, we, we just are without alternatives, aren't we? That's right, and uh, we did publish uh, a uh, roadmap last fall. Uh, Dalhousie and the University of Guelph, uh, we both got together and said, okay, so if we, if we can't scrap the quota system, which is politically impossible, right. how can we actually uh, improve the regime for Canadians? And so we published uh, a roadmap called Supply Management 2.0, which is now published in an academic journal now, and it was actually endorsed this week by the Globe and Mail's editorial board on Thursday. They actually reviewed the roadmap and basically said, you know what, this plan makes sense because the first item on the agenda is to reform the CDC, mm-hmm. to change its governance, to change its way, its methods of doing things.
It is an eight degree Saturday morning in the rain. Sterling Fox with Sylvain Charlebois from the Agri-Food Lab at Dalhousie University in Halifax on the line. And Sylvain, one of our callers during the uh, intermission there, uh, called up and said, would you ask the professor to talk about Buttergate, please? Because this <laughs> this this is something that uh, most of us don't know enough about. So this had to do with Canadian farmers feeding Canadian cows with palm oil oil from abroad uh this is uh, tell us more so we remember it but only vaguely remind us please yeah so your listener is uh is well versed in in dairy politics so last spring uh, uh what came to light was this practice of uh, feeding cattle or dairy farm dairy cows with with palmite which is a palm oil derivative from asia and obviously uh not only it compromises the blue cow image of the industry uh, people, many people are concerned about palm oil altogether. So when they learn of the story, they were troubled. But the data that we that we had, which was also collected by the University of Guelph, uh, demonstrated beyond reasonable doubt that the use of palmite actually made butter harder. Uh, it wasn't melting, or it wasn't getting softer at room temperature. And so when when the story came out, it went it went viral. And basically, the entire world <laughs> got interested in Canadian butter because of what is now known as Buttergate. And uh, we knew <clears throat> that at some point, if and, and the reason why dairy farmers were doing it is, is basically to increase butterfat content okay. uh, in, in a cheap matter. It's much cheaper to give palmite than to actually add cows to the herd to produce more butterfat. So what we were expecting this time of year was to see an increase in butterfat prices because it's likely costing dairy farmers more to produce butterfat if they're not using palmite anymore because the practice was uh, was banned by the dairy farmers of Canada. Ah, so it was banned. Okay, so the whole point was to give uh, give this substance, palm oil, a derivative, palmite, yeah. to Canadian cows in order to have them produce harder butter. So, yeah, well, Sterling, I should clarify that the ban was temporary. Oh. We don't know what's going on with that. There is an investigation going on. There's a working group that I've met personally because I shared the data with the working group uh, I think it was in May or June, but we still don't know what's going on with that group. Uh, again, going back to transparency, but it, it's a lobby group. I get it. But with the CDC, I think we should expect more transparency. I should think so. And again, uh, the whole point of Canadians being prepared to a certain degree, Sylvain, but we are prepared. We understand about the the Canadian Dairy Commission, the supply management. We know that we pay more for our milk and dairy than pretty much any other consumer group on the planet. And we're prepared to tolerate that as long as we understand a few basics. For example, Canadian cows are fed Canadian-only products and feeds and subs, uh, substitutes and so on, supplements. However, now we're hearing that this palmite stuff, this is from Asia. This is not a Canadian product being fed to Canadian animals. So therefore, quality is compromised. Would you agree? Absolutely. And so the, the reputation of cane butter was heavily damaged by, by Buttergate. So uh, I think with the 12.4%, they're trying to uh, make better butter, of course, for Canadians. And I think Canadians deserve it. And, and frankly, 
I mean, in our numbers, it shows that Canadians do support the dairy sector. Mm-hmm. They want to support the dairy sector. They want to buy Canadian products, but they want quality too. I mean, they, I think it's a fair thing to expect as consumers. My concern, regardless of what you think about the 8.4% for milk or the 12.4% for butter, my concern is that processors in Canada are likely going to go south to get their dairy proteins and will import these dairy proteins illegally to produce the dairy products we want, we buy, to maintain you know, a good price. And what's likely to happen is that we could actually see more dairy farms disappear in Canada, including uh, the ones we have in BC. Well, that's interesting. So, what? Just just to follow up on that, if a if a Canadian producer is importing dairy byproducts illegally from the United States, what product would be available to us using that ingredient, Sylvain? Uh, well, so let's say that you're a cheesemaker, okay. You need several liters of milk to produce one kilo of cheese. Okay. Uh, you could go to the United States and get some uh, diafiltrated milk imported into Canada legally, uh, labeled differently, so it flies under the radar. It, it has happened before. I mean, many, many dairy processors were importing millions and millions of dollars of, of dairy proteins illegally in Canada until we created a thing called Class 7, making processors uh, buy back some dairy proteins in Canada. I'm not, I'm not going to go into, uh, into complicated issues here, but the bottom line is that if you price yourself out of the market, if you're forcing processors to pay too much for your product, right. they'll go south where it's a quarter, a quarter of the price. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about just uh, stepping back from the dairy section of the supermarket, Sylvain. I mentioned earlier, we went shopping yesterday and every commodity we bought in every aisle of the store had increased. It's just right across the board. Talk to us a little bit about, you're talking about the dairy prices we know will go up in February. Prices are already going up. Tomatoes up 13%, ground beef 14%, pears 12%. I mean, the list just keeps going on and on. Is this about supply? chain or is there more to it uh it's it's really there's a it's a mixture of three things i think uh one the grain market is making a lot of things more expensive input costs are going up in processing uh to feed livestock is costing more as well which Mm -hmm. is why you're seeing you know meat meat prices going up and uh, animal proteins in general are much more expensive eggs chicken everything else uh, second is labor. Labor is an issue in agri-food, and of course, uh, labor uh, salaries are going up. But in a high-volume, low-margin environment, uh, things are really tight, so you have to adjust prices. And thirdly, uh, transportation. Transportation is becoming more and more costly, and uh, and so really what uh, is is going to happen over the next little while is that to move anything around either on water or on land it's just going to cost more so as the the grocery chains and so on uh, scramble to find enough truckers and and vehicles to deliver from their terminals to their stores and so on uh, and the truckers are demanding more money because they can all of these increases in costs are just going to be flat out passed along to the likes of you and me at the till right yeah absolutely and so um we're actually co- currently working with um, 
So we're, we're about to publish Canada's food price report. As you probably know, every year we release uh, Canada's food price report in December. It's going to be on December 9th this year, and we're working with uh, the University of Guelph, the University of Saskatchewan, and the University of British Columbia, uh, right where you are. And uh, so we're, we've started our meetings, and uh, I mean, we've been looking at our models, and it's just not looking good for 2022, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are So things were rocky this year. We were expecting an increase of about 5%, and uh, we're also expecting uh, a, a difficult year again next year, unfortunately. Indeed. Uh, Sylvain, let's make a date right here in front of lots of witnesses that once that report is out, the food cost report December is out. On just, uh, well, yeah. we'll, we'll, uh, we'll get you on right after that, and uh, we'll talk about the specifics you outlined for 2021. And thanks again very much for doing this with us this morning. It's always a pleasure. My pleasure. Take care. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen to us live, 6 to 9, weekend mornings. I'm Sterling Fox. Have a great week. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. (laughs) And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.